Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content, and we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. Definitely a legend in our sport, and I can't wait to get into some stories. So today's guest is a U of Calgary grad where he was Player of the Year, an All-Canadian, and a CIS champion. He's represented Team Canada on our junior national team, FISU, on our senior team, and represented us at the 1992 Olympics. He's played pro in Belgium, Japan, and France, and is a Hall of Famer with the University of Calgary and Alberta Volleyball. Please welcome to the show, Randy Gigera. Randy, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, you bet. So I think Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, I'm so excited to get into this. I think uh, a lot of our listeners would have perked up when they saw your name come across as this week's guest. But uh, just for anyone who's not familiar with your career, just tell us uh, kind of where you grew up and what kind of sports you were into as a kid. Native Calgarian. I was born and raised here and um, probably like every kid at that time played everything. Played a bit of football in grade 10, played some basketball, spent the summers in the park playing baseball, you know. We were more multi-sport back then, right? I mean, we just did it all. Nice, nice. So when you really got into volleyball, was it through school sport or was club sport really popular in Calgary at that time as well? No, we had a really cool um, high school coach. And this is a nice story because uh, he was a good coach, great guy. But we went to practice one day and he said, okay, come on out to the parking lot. We're going to jump in the school bus. And he drove us up to the University of Calgary because the men's national team used to be, you know, based there. So that would have been all the alumni from the 84 team. So it would have been Saxton and Coulter and Graton and Barrett and all these guys training in the gold gym in Calgary. And so he just, to be honest, I don't know if he prearranged it or not, but we just walked in, sat against the back wall and, and we just went, oh my goodness. So this is what volleyball is, you know, balls going up into the ceiling and the speed and the height. And we were just blown away. You know, three quarters of the team was sold right there. That was, that was our sport. That was our thing. Yeah. Would you say that had a pretty lasting effect with you? Cause in in trying to find like video on you and talking to other people about your career, you were a very physical player. It sounded like you liked to be aggressive. You were a spin server. You were a big player on the right side. Like seeing how athletic and fun volleyball could be, did that really stick with you and really make you want to pursue it? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, when you're a young kid and you think you know what volleyball is, and then you go and you see the best players in the world do it. That's a completely different thing. Uh, you know, when you see people playing up above the aerial and and hitting the ball that hard and people are standing in front of it and you're a 17-year-old kid and you're just like, these people are crazy, right? I mean, we just had no exposure to that before then. So seeing that and seeing how just how physical it was, yeah, it was it was mind blowing and it was inspiring and, and the whole bit. And for me, when I got to go to the national, one of my first national team tryouts, my name was Gingera and the next guy was Paul Graton. So to have him standing beside me, you know, saying, come on, Randy, you can touch 360. It's like it's like the greatest moment in the world for me. Right. Yeah, that's so cool. So with you being from Alberta and with the, with the national team located there, like you said, was it easy to be attached to the national team? Cause we've had other guests on the show where like, it, it was funny. Fred Winters mentioned he wasn't that intimidated when he went to a national team tryout. Cause it was pre the YouTube era and he didn't really know all the guys. So he was just there to have a good time and play really well. But for you, did you feel like a little bit connected that when you went into the gym, you're like, Oh, there's so-and-so and I know this guy. Yeah. I think we definitely had a more, um, certainly more aware of who was on the team and who was playing just because we had the exposure to them. We could watch them practice. You know, they were sort of in our backyard. That certainly helps 100%. I, I would say for me, when I went to those first camps, it was more not necessarily being intimidated, but wow, I get to come and play with these guys. It's, it's uh, like a privilege, you know? 
So as your career develops and you're going through the system and probably some provincial team and some high level like club or school ball, what pursued you to go to Calgary for your university option? Like, was there anyone else recruiting you pretty heavy? Did you want to stay close to home or was it because the national team was in Calgary that that was going to be the right fit for you? No, again, it was a lot different then. Um, I wouldn't say players were recruited as vigorously as they are now. Even though the national team, I think, draws on, you know, our university pool, that's the feeder system. I wasn't recruited that hard. And maybe it, it's because I did my improving later on. I, you know, I don't know. But I can say it's fairly true for a lot of the guys on that team. There were a bunch of us that showed up at the University of Calgary. Might have talked to one school or two schools and that was it. And we had a legitimate sort of open tryout and made the team at UFC. And it was Greg Ryan's first year. So there were people like myself and Kevin Boyles and Kelly Grosky. And, uh, you know, Tom Elser didn't come till later on. I guess it would have been our fourth year. But I don't think those guys were recruited either. <laughs> we just came to tryout camp. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear you talk about an open tryout with guys like yourself. And, and obviously, you were on the Olympic team uh, with Boyles, and then the Elser family just has such a great heritage in our sport. So did you have a sign? Did the coach have a sign of what you guys could accomplish there? Or were you really just focused on doing well in Canada West and doing well at CIS? Like, did you guys know what you were trending towards and how special some of your teams are going to be? Or you really had no idea because you were so new to it? No, we were. I think we were definitely a little bit... Uh... A little bit naive in the beginning, you know, we just wanted to play volleyball. We we're a bunch of kids and having a good time. Boy, this is fun. We get to play volleyball in the university. Yeah, I don't think it was until our second year where we started started to really improve and and on a rapid, rapid pace. We beat a few people in our first team, sorry, in our first year, but there were a lot of difficult moments. Greg used to give us beer money because we used to get throttled so badly after our matches in Canada West. And he would say, you know, the first round's on me and you guys just go and forget about it and we'll get back to work on Monday. It felt so bad for us that he was buying us beer. So I don't know if you can say those things these days. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, but we did, we did manage to beat a few really good schools um, in our first year, but then really started to knock people off on the second in the second year. And that was sort of when, you know, we, I think the third year was when Dino cup started and we brought the American schools up and we were really starting to play well then. And then in my fourth year, Tom came back. And when, when Tom came back, we felt we had, you know, the silver bullet to do everything and anything we wanted to. Yeah, just for my reference and for the listeners as well, it, is it fair to say Manitoba would have been the top team there? Sask was always pretty strong. I think even Winnipeg was, was meddling at Nationals. Like, who were some of the top teams that were kind of above you guys in the rankings before you really started to achieve and, and build everything you were doing at Calgary there? Yeah, Manitoba was, um, I think, the previous year's national champion in 88. Saskatchewan was always very, very good at that time. Canada West was very, very strong. Dalhousie was getting good. Waterloo was starting to become good. The Smith brothers were there. So, yeah, before before we really started to get good, I, I would say Manitoba was was the team to beat. And I'm glad you mentioned the Dino Cup there because I think I remember being a young guy and that was on TV. Like that grew into a big deal. And as you mentioned, like the U.S. schools would go there. So as a guy in school at that time, how was that described to you? Was this supposed to be a volleyball showcase? Was this supposed to be a preseason tournament? Like how did that kind of grow into what the Dino Cup became at its peak? Well, I think initially it was just, you know, sort of a for us a preseason tournament in a way to bring some good teams up. But at the same time, showcase that Canadian volleyball was on par with the Americans. I think that was sort of Greg's vision. And I remember the very first year UCLA came up, you know, walking around campus, people were just, do you really think you guys can beat them? And there was that kind of sentiment all around. The, you know, you'd get stopped by people everywhere. 
And yeah, maybe we were just, I don't know, again, naive. Yeah, we can beat him. We just started talking like that and, and, um, and went out the first year and thumped him. And then it was game on. Right. I think everybody wanted to be part of the action then. And I, and I think in terms of men's volleyball, you know, those are important moments because we've never had to feel like we had to go to the United States to, to play equivalent level university volleyball. For sure. And then looking, uh, it looks like the year before you guys took it down and won the CIS national championship, you guys finished third. So did that bronze really confirm for your program that like playing in front of like a national semi and being deep in the tournament, did that really confirm that you guys were putting it together and you had a good thing going? Definitely. And like I said, when Tom came back from Europe, you know, it was just like the missing piece of the puzzle, right? We had all these young guys that wanted to come, um, I guess in my fourth year, people like Bruce Edwards and Andy Cameron were up and comers. So I, I figured it out. And I think on that 89 team, there were six guys that either did play on the national team or would play on the national team. So that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Yeah. Tell me about so, that, yeah. that year, that 89 year, because in reading about it to do this show, everything I found says you guys, you, you ran the table in Canada, you went undefeated. And I think you only lost one match and that was an exhibition game to a U.S. school, right? So must have been a great feeling going to the gym every day after a win and like kind of what you went through in your first couple of years there to put it together and, and be just rolling everybody, it sounded like. No, it was super fun. And it was, it was, um, it's pretty rare in sport to feel that way where you, you feel, um, invincible <laughs> you know and i think we honestly felt that way uh we lost the one match to the university of hawaii in the final at the ucsb invitational down at santa barbara that was the one match we lost we lost it in the fifth set i think 15 13 should have won it but that's you know that's life <laughs> things go on you know life goes on but um we some of the matches we played were incredible. I remember we played USC in the final in uh, the Manitoba Vices tournament and beat them in I think 52 minutes. It was shocking how fast we sent these guys home. You know, it was amazing. Now, was nationals the same format that you guys knew when you arrived on campus for that year that you were going to host nationals? Like, I'm trying to think. Like, the formats changed over the years a little bit, but did you guys know from day one you were going to host the national championship? Yes, I believe we did. I think, um, in fact, Kevin kind of tells a story about building when they built the Jack Simpson. He said, we're going to, we're going to win nationals here. And when he said that, I don't think he knew it, but by the time that season for 88, 89 started, we did know that we were hosting. So now, as an athlete, did you really, you know, anchor to the statements like that? Because you, you knew how strong your team was. You knew you were hosting nationals. That Are you a guy who likes to put it on the board and say, we're going to win a national championship? Is that something you guys talked about often? Or were you more on, like, the process side about, like, let's get better today? Or were you guys kind of had that end goal in mind that, like, it was going to be a big spring and you guys were going to take it down? Maybe in the locker room we might talk like that. I don't think we were sort of people that were talking publicly like that. You know? pretty reserved in that way but once we got around each other it was yeah we can do this let's do this no one's going to stand in our way and and um the the way we played that last year was some of the most fun volleyball i think i've ever played to be honest and how did your team stay focused because it sounds like you like to beat a top U.S. team in, in under an hour, and I imagine some of your league matches weren't close. So were, were the practices really competitive? Did the coach really keep you grounded? Like, how did you guys not overshoot this and think like, oh, we got this and just stop working versus like going right till the end and really reaching the potential that team had? Well, I think Greg was pretty good at that. He's a very good technical coach. He was always sort of striving that there were things to work on, ways to get better, and to keep your mouth shut, you know, and just keep playing. I, I've kind of always believed that since I was young, tried to play that way, but you know, there's no sense in talking until everything's over. I've forgotten that rule maybe once or twice, but <laughs> other than that, it served me pretty well. 
Nice. So it looks like with your track record, you were part of Canada's junior national team and then uh, World University Games or, or FISUs, it's called now. So when you're going through the university system, were you already thinking ahead to being on the senior A team or were you kind of already in both camps that it was going to be a natural progression that when you were done school, you were going to play for Team Canada? You know, when I look back, I don't feel that way. You might talk to other people that say that, but I, you know, I think I was just kind of going about my business. And, um, you know, I remember my dad said to me once, you know, what are you doing this for? Why don't you just go to engineering school? And, and I said, well, people are telling me that I'm okay. You know, maybe, maybe I have a, a shot. I can do something, you know? And so I just kind of kept walking through the door if it was open for me. And if there was a camp or a tryout or an opportunity, I was like, okay, let's see what happens. Right. Yeah. If you tried to remember back then, was your goal to play for Canada or did you also have the goal to play professional volleyball? Like as, as a fourth year or fifth year in university, was professional volleyball even on your radar? No, it wasn't to be honest. I knew some of the national team guys did it, but if you would ask me in high school that people could play professional volleyball and make money, I would have said, Oh, okay. No idea. I think the kids now are much more aware of the opportunities that are there for them. You know, social media, it's the golden age now. Like I, I don't even think I have five minutes of quality video from when I played. And now you've got, you know, Instagram loops and feeds that are just amazing. And you know, we just didn't have that. These kids know what's they know. Yeah, I my think son's got, my son's got Nishida's jersey on his bedroom wall because I played with the, the head coach. Like, and we can make these things happen. I can send a text and boom. <laughs> it's just so simple now. So take me into the process of, of what it was like to make the senior national team and, and how far ahead did they make that roster for the 92 Olympics? Like what, like how did you make the team and then how did the team qualify for the games? If you had to think back to, to the 92 uh, Olympics there. Uh, they, I can't remember when the final squad was actually picked the final group of guys that would have traveled to the Olympics, but we went through probably, I don't know, 20, 24 people that might have cycled through there between when I made the team in 89 till the time we actually went in 92. We ended up qualifying because it was a little bit different then because they would qualify out of your zone, so the Norseka zone. USA was past Olympic champions, so they got in. And I think he was a world champion. So they got in. So if we won, if we came in third North Seekers, we could qualify. That's how we qualified. So we actually qualified in Regina at a North Seeker championships. And you mentioned the number of bodies going in and out of the program. So did you ever feel that your spot was at risk or did you just keep going day by day and just trying to do your best and, and make a good impression on the coach? Like, did you ever feel that you, you could be removed from the team any, any day? Cause you mentioned it was a couple of year process, right? So how did you feel about your own spot and your own goal of playing for Canada at that stage that big, like the Olympics? Uh, definitely risky. Um, before 1992, I'm just trying to think exactly when I had my first shoulder surgery, but I had some pretty serious problems with my shoulder. I, I'm going to say starting in 1990 and to the point where I, I had it scoped and I had a bunch of a little bit of reconstruction done and I was basically shagging balls for eight months. And, you know, when that happens to you, you're sort of thinking, am I going to get, healthy enough again to do this? Am I going to heal? Am I going to be all right? Is it going to happen in time? And so those were the first iterations of world league, which is now nation's league. Um, that yeah, I missed quite a few matches and, and definitely had some difficult thoughts that went through my mind because I was pretty sore there for quite a long time. 
so yeah, I didn't feel my job was ever safe. That's for sure. Yeah. And I'm curious if you had to think about it, what was it like coming back as a guy who was aggressive, who was going to attack a lot of balls, who was going to get a lot of volume, like a, a shoulder. Did you ever feel like you came back and you were kind of dipping your toe in or when the doctor gave you the all clear, were you back in the gym playing like your style and trying to be like the player you wanted to be? Yeah, I, I had to. And, um, we were very lucky in Calgary. We had a very good team of people around us, very good surgeons and doctors and physiotherapists. So I think when the team was centered in Calgary, we had um, we had first-class care, and I think they were a big part of me becoming healthy again and, and um, being okay by the time 1992 rolled around. Yeah, so take me through the games because I think – a pessimist could look at the results and say, oh, Canada finished 10th. You know, it wasn't a great event for them. But if you go in through the weeds and look at match by match, like there was a lot of tight matches that probably a few points here and there, it could have went the other way, right? So what was your impression of attending a, a games like that, but also your own performance and the team's performance? Uh, you know, it's heartbreaking. I think it's, um, unfortunately, it's sport. It, it uh, doesn't hurt to get a few good breaks now and then. And... Uh, you know, we lost to Spain in the fifth set. We lost to the USA in the fifth set. We lost to Japan in the fifth set. We had a tight match with Italy. We were in every match except for the one for 10th, which no one, I think, had their heart in. We had higher aspirations than that. And uh, to lose three matches in the fifth set, and I, I'd have to go back and look at the score, but I have the impression they were all uh, actually 15, 12, or 13. So that's that's a tough pill to swallow when you look back. And with you being such a young guy, like it, it's tough knowing when you're in it, but do you have a feeling like we can do this again? Like 96 is coming up. Like we can have another run. Like uh, obviously you, there's no way to tell this, but when you look back and see like the drought we had between Barcelona and then Rio again, did that really like affect the program in a way? Like when you look back, like maybe what were some causes for that or, or why did it go down that way? Because it looked like we had a good team, a lot of young guys, like the, everything was in place and then the, the drought kind of happened. Yeah. Well, we, um, you know, we went down to the last qualifier. I think it was, in, we went to Portugal, went down to the last match against Bulgaria to try and qualify. And I think we lost in four sets. It was really, really tight. And that, you know, that was a funny games too, because the, the, uh, the Olympic bid was between Atlanta and Toronto. So if it's Toronto, you're in, <laughs> you know, and I hate to say it, but things just have always seemed to go the Americans way in a lot of regards. Their team wasn't that great. Then. In fact, we were probably on paper better, but then they, they qualify as a host. Right. So, you know, these, these things happen and, and, um, I think after that, it took some time for the the program to rebuild. It seems like now there's just lots and lots of guys in the pipeline. It just seems to be a lot of kids that are 6'6 six, six that jump out of the gym. I think they're much more aware of the fact that they can go somewhere in the sport. They don't have to play basketball or football. That there's a European pro league and there's opportunities. And, and um, so I think... Now we're, I think we're seeing more guys that are choosing volleyball instead of what might have typically been football or basketball. Yeah, just to give the listeners context, like I'm looking at uh, 94, you guys take a ninth at Worlds, and there was guys like you and Gino and Greaves left over, and then there was young guys like Haldane and Durden and uh, Sanheim and a bunch of guys coming. So like I think the, the proof was in the pudding. We were good enough to be at the 96 Olympics. It just it just didn't happen that way. But, like I don't think the program really suffered a letdown. I think like it was restocking and there was guys there. It was just kind of disappointing it didn't happen. But when you look back at your career, did, did the coaching change maybe have an effect on it? Because you played for, was it? Watson, who would have been at the Olympics, and then who stepped in in after their term? Uh, let's see. It would have been would have been Pischke yet, right? It would have been one one in between. I'm thinking. Yeah, Clemolamiu was in between, and then it was Pischke at the end, or Garth Pischke at the end. Um, the coaching change, yeah, it it definitely affects things. I know there was a lot of. There were a lot of issues back then about guys getting released and how much it was going to cost. The release fees were a big, big deal back then. I couldn't even tell you what they are now, to be honest. But I remember there were guys I knew that weren't playing in the first division that were losing 
30% of their contract because the release fee was 7,500 bucks. If you had a, you know, national team sort of tag on your resume. So, you know, there were all these sort of things that I think Volleyball Canada was trying to work out in those days. And, and, um, not sure if that all that helped or, or not, but, um, you know, I guess the other thing that frustrates me a little bit is most people just don't have an idea of how hard it is to qualify period. I think when you make it to the Olympics, it is a giant, giant accomplishment because it is so competitive. You could probably take 12 teams from Europe and have an incredible Olympic games, you know, let alone this, the best from South America and Asia and all over the place to get one of those spots is it's extremely, extremely difficult. It's even harder now because you can't, you don't necessarily qualify out of your zone. Yeah. When you say release fee was the, the goal of the program, like to train in Canada and be carded and stay at like the center or like, I, I'm not saying that the program didn't want guys over playing overseas and play professionally, but was there an option for them to stay in Canada full time? And that's maybe what the national team was or, or why was there this barrier to kind of go and play for a club? Well, at the time they believed that it would be better if we stayed in the center. So people like myself and Kent Greaves, Russ Paddock, Terry Gagnon, um, all these types of guys, we spent a whole 18 months, 24 months together, almost a full, there were a few guys that floated in and out and, and did get to play pro. Um, but we stayed in the center from, you know, 89 to 92 training full time together with the belief that being together would give us an advantage. And in hindsight, I think it helped. We played a lot of very, very good matches and, and played very well. Um, and on the flip side, you know, when I was playing for Garth Pischke, the last time that we qualified for World Championships, which would have been like in 90, I'm going to say 98, Haldane, Greaves, a bunch of guys flew back from Europe. I was in school in Calgary. I trained with the Dinos. We met in Toronto flew to Cuba and won. <laughs> so I, I don't know what the right answer is. And, and you know, like you, you, you believe all these things and you try and do what you can do to give yourself the best advantage. But those are two polar opposites that provided similar results. Definitely. Definitely. So when you finally got an opportunity to play professional volleyball, what was the process like? Uh, was there a common agent that uh, like Team Canada guys were using? Did you speak to anybody before going over? Like, how did you get like the first offer, or or if you had more than one, how did you uh, how did you decide where you wanted to be? Yeah, at that time we were playing a lot of preparation matches in Europe to get ready for the Olympics, and so we were on the road a ton and met a lot of people, and so there were agents floating around, there were scouts floating around at all these various tournaments at the Olympics as well. And a lot of us ended up signing with a Dutch agent at the time who had a pretty good reputation. And he's the person that helped me um, end up going to Zelik in Belgium. That's where I ended up trying to start my career, I guess. And, and really kind of got lucky, you know, there was, it was kind of a, I don't, I don't want to say bizarre in a weird way, but it's just, it was a small market team. And we felt it was a good place to try and start because be a primary attacker on a really good team within that country. But we ended up being Belgian champion and then we just tore through Europe and went to the Champions League final four twice. So we did it, uh, did it both years. And um, Anybody who's done that knows that's not easy to do. It's one thing to be Belgian champion, but uh, to go beat the Spanish champion, the German champion, the Finnish champion, and just keep to keep going all the way through Europe and get to the final four is really hard. 
Yeah, I usually ask guys through the show, like, did you ever feel pressure being a foreigner on a team like that? But it sounds like you were performing as soon as you got there, so they must have really loved you. But uh, did, did it feel different being on a club team versus the national team and just having to get used to a different set or a different coach and everything that goes on to that, uh, being in a new system, I guess? Yeah, it does, you know, and it for some reason didn't bother me. I knew I was the primary attacker. And it's kind of nice in a way when you kind of get in a rhythm, when you know you're going to get X number of sets a match, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of nice. You decide your own fate and it's either you're up for it or you're not. So I was, I was happy with that. It was great. And, and Belgium's, I call it the little gem of Europe anyway. It's a tiny little place, but everyone speaks English. My teammates were great guys, had a, had a good coach and, um, met some really nice peripheral friends. My wife came over. She ended up playing on the women's team, which was, I think, second provincial, but met a bunch of people and, and we just had a blast, you know, it was, it was super fun. Didn't have kids. It was selfish, right? It's all about me. (laughs) (laughs) Now I, I am curious when you look back, you're, you're CIS player of the year. Your team wins a national championship. You go on the national team. Now you're playing pro. Like every time you make a jump, was there ever a time that you feel like you needed to add something to your game or wow, the, these guys are more physical or like as you go up the ladder, was there anything that you found really challenging or you were just kind of riding the wave and enjoying every experience you were a part of because it, it seemed to be going well? I think I was lucky. I was able to adjust, but I, I am coaching both my kids and I've told both of their teams. I remember going to some of the first national team practices and, and just thinking there's no space. There's no space. I'm never going to hit a ball to the floor again in my life. Like, you know, it just felt like everyone's bigger and faster and stronger. And there's just not a lot of room. You got to be more special. Right. So the things that worked in university didn't work anymore. And you've got to either figure that out real quick or you fade away. Now, was that something you had to figure out on your own or when you were in Belgium for, for those first years, did you feel like you were getting coached up or because it's a professional team, they kind of buy you with these stats and they almost treat you like a video game where you just go out there and you perform because you're this good or, or was there a development system where you feel like you were getting feedback and coached up from this club? Um, I wouldn't say so. Not that much, not in terms of attacking anyway, in terms of the team system, maybe, and just the way we wanted to play as a group. Yes, Absolutely. But I had my, you know, I guess my tool bag that I knew I could rely on in terms of what I wanted to do in the front row. And let's face it, I think if you're going to, you're playing at a higher level with your national team than you are with your, with your pro team. I shouldn't say that, but depending on where you play, right? So... I think if you go to maybe those top Italian teams where you got four of the Italian starters and best Brazilian middle and the Russian right side, okay, different story. Right. But it, that wasn't the case for me in, in, in Belgium. I had three or four Belgian national team guys at the time. They weren't quite as strong as everyone else. So I felt like I could do what I needed to do attacking-wise anyway in practice and, and matches. And how did you feel about managing your your own rest and recovery, just your own body in general from being a, a guy on your pro team and getting so much volume? And then you go back to Canada and you don't really get an off season because I imagine as soon as you were done pro, you were back in the gym with our national team versus like with the the older system you're talking about. If you were with our national team for 18 months, I'm sure they they planned some periodization. They gave you some rest and time to recover. Now you're you're in peak season almost year round going from club to national team. So how, how did you feel you managed that load of just getting so much volume with both teams? Well, there were times when I had to negotiate for that. I remember coming back to the national team and just going to the coach and saying, I want two weeks off. <laughs> I'm happy to be here all summer, but I need a break. And so they'd think about it. Okay, well, we can give you this <laughs> or that, you know. And I remember vividly having some issues with my coach in Belgium the first year because I'd come off, you know, training in the center for basically three years. You play World League leading up to the Olympics, and that's a crazy schedule. Then you play through the Olympics. Seven days later, you're on the plane to go to Belgium, and I get there, and I go out and practice, and I'm just – 
stroking balls. I'm tired. And the coach comes up to me and he's, if you don't hit the ball hard, you and I are going to have problems. And I said, it's been a long couple of years here. So like, you got to just cut me a little bit of slack for a couple of weeks. Just let me get my feet underneath me and, and rest a tiny bit. And I'm there. Uh, so how did the opportunity to go to Japan pop up? Like, did your agent just say they were interested? Did you want to go to a volleyball crazy country like Japan? Like, how did you make your next move in, in pro uh, ball to land in Japan? Um, yeah, that's kind of a funny story, too, because even though we did well in Belgium, I just couldn't work out a new deal with the team. And um, this is a little bit of an aside, but they had gone out and tried to buy the best Belgian player and ran into some financial trouble because this guy actually had a heart attack and passed away. And um, it kind of messed up the finances of the club when this didn't happen. So um, ended up not going back and wasn't sure I was going to play again. I remember Russ and I were, Russ Paddock and I were um, roommates and we were at world championships in 90. Uh, what year would that have been? 94. Yeah, 94, I think. Sort of talking about whether we were going to find anybody to play. And actually, Paul Gratton had started an agency and he said, I got this phone call from a team in Japan that's interested in you. And I was still technically under contract with the Dutch guy. But ended up following the lead with Paul. He was cool enough to sort of let me, I guess, piggyback the lead on him and we did have some issues with agency fees and had to work some stuff out, but um, that's kind of how it happened. And, and uh, they wanted me to come out after world championships and do sort of a little mini tryout. So I went out there for a week, trained with the team and they said, great, let's, let's do this. So, so that's how I got my, my foot in the door there. And we had a very good season my first year and finished second and um, did the same in the second year, at which time I learned that doesn't fly in Japan very long. It's like you got to win or they make a change. So I loved it there. It was an awesome place. It just an f- amazing place to play. Your volleyball nuts. and It's one of their top tier sports. So they're just extremely professional, extremely kind. Um, there's no issues, at least that I ever heard about with money or getting paid or, you know, not having support or what you need. They're just fantastic. Now, did you have any challenges off the court? Because I think it sounded like you had a good opportunity in Belgium and there was English speakers and you felt like welcome right from the start where going to an Asian country, did you have trouble with the language or was the food kind of new to you or getting around a city or a town that had a large population? Like, did anything off the court kind of add a distraction or did you feel like you dealt with that pretty easily from the start? No, you know, I actually, I remember doing a, like a little class project when I was in elementary school about Japan. It kind of always fascinated me. So it was funny that I ended up there and I like the food just cause I'm a bit of a food geek nerd here at home. And so we, yeah, you know, my wife and we were always interested in Japanese food. So that was not a problem. There were, I'd say four guys on the team that spoke really good English. They, they were very intentional in what they were doing. So they, they gave me a Western style apartment, put in a regular toilet, (laughs) all these kinds of things. So they were awesome. If I needed something, they just, they provided it and and tried to make that as seamless as, as they could. So, you know, I would say the only thing that would, that was a little bit different is just dealing with um, Japanese culture and the nuances in that, you know, it's, it can be a little funny at times. Yeah. And I think some, some Asian leagues have definitely earned a reputation for, for training pretty hard. So was there anything new there, but like the volume you were getting in training or were they training more than you were used to, or, or did you get it pretty easily versus what some other Canadians have felt with like two days and getting like 40 sets a match or more? Like uh, how did you feel about the volleyball side of it when you were in Japan, other than your team was doing really well, but uh, did the body hold up those years you were there? 
Oh, my body was fine, but there was definitely, um, there was a learning curve because I remember running out the first day and sort of a Canadian style warm up, you know, jet up and down the court, do your stretching. I'm looking around, everybody's moving really slow. I'm like, what's going on? Hour later, they're still warming up. <laughs> We'd usually start around one. And I remember on the, in the first practice, you know, I'm looking at the clock and it's, it's five, it's five thirty, it's six. We're going on five straight hours on the court. And there were days when we started at noon and wouldn't get out of there until six thirty. So that was just unheard of. I mean, to go longer than three hours and 15 minutes in Canada was just never did that. Right. It wasn't like it was full 100% intensity. Like they would literally spend a lot more time warming up slowly over a long period of time for let's say 40 minutes, 45 minutes, and then get into lower intensity drills, repetitious drills, serve, receive, that kind of thing. And then slowly ramp up as you went through that sort of four or five, even six hour window of time. So that was, that was bizarre, hard to get used to initially. We'll see how Sharon does. He's there right now. He's actually on the same team. Oh, no, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I knew he was there. I didn't realize he was on the same club. Uh, yeah. I'm curious, with you being into coaching now, did you steal any of that? Or that just wouldn't be a hit with the kids today and shorter attendance spans, or like the, the slow repetition stuff? Is there anything you stole from that that you would still use? Or it just wouldn't like click with the kids right now? No, I don't think that would fly here culturally. Like the kids just, you know, he spent four minutes talking too long and you can see them looking down the rest of the gym and things that are more interesting. So you've got to keep them engaged. I've, that would just, I don't think that would fly here. It just wouldn't. <laughs> and you had one more stop there where you got to play in France's league, which uh, I don't know if you deserve some credit for this, maybe laying some groundwork, but it seems like that's always going to be a popular destination for Canadians to go to France and have a good experience. So when you went there, were you at a club and following another Canadian there? Or were you kind of the first one to stop over there and have a good experience in France? Uh, well, Kent was there before me. He was already playing in Paris. Um, there were lots of guys playing there before me, but I played for Julien Boucher. Hey? So that's how that happened. I was actually sort of thinking about coming home and going back to school. And then he gave me a phone call and he said, why don't you come back for one more year? And uh, we need a right side. And I think you can help. And, and so it's always that game. You know, it was getting harder and harder to go away. My wife was staying here. And, you know, by the time I was getting into that sixth, seventh year with, with us being apart, just started to feel a little bit more like a job and less like fun. So uh, you, you got to sit there and look at what they're offering you for money and decide whether it's worth the uh, eight months apart, you know? I'm glad you mentioned Julian there. Cause I think everyone just knows him as the volleyball Canada guy. I don't know. I, I didn't really recognize that he had some professional club experience as well. Yeah. Yeah. He was coaching in Tokwan, um, I believe the year before I came and then coached that year. And I think he, and I'm not sure how many years he stayed after I left and he was all-star assistant coach at the Olympics 92. So nice, nice. And if, if I'm correct in my research for the show, when you did decide to retire from professional volleyball, did you go back to school? Did you decide to get your master's after? And was that a pretty hard decision to do after being a professional athlete to go back to the classroom? No, you know, it was, I think it was the place I needed to go. Um, kind of finished up my first degree and then, my wife was going into grad school and I was, maybe that's a good idea for me as well. So I just, it was a good fit and we didn't have, wasn't very long after that where we had our, our first baby. So, um, had Scarlett when 2002. So I was still working on my, uh, master's degree project when we had our newborn here. So yeah, it was just time to sort of slow down, I guess. But, you know, again, during that time, like I was still helping you see a little bit and floating around. And that's how I kind of ended up on that team with Garth Pischke. It was just a phone call that that happened. He's like, I need another guy. Right. So. OK, I'll go. Sure. Why not? You know, and then I phoned Greg Ryan. Can I come and train? <laughs> Got to go play in a tournament. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> no, that's great. And I'm curious to get your perspective on this because, again, in doing some research for the show, having the center in Calgary seems to have a ripple effect that we're still experiencing today. Like you mentioned, you're coaching your kids. The Greaves name comes up again. Uh, Terry Gagnon has done a lot. Like his son, Josh, is playing at a, at a really good level. Uh, Boyles is involved. Like in your experience, when you look back, what did that mean to have the, the program there, but also to have players stick around and raise their families and then give back to the community? Oh, it's, it's, it has incredible value. I think just look at the number of second generation people that are walking around the courts right now with the name on their back and you, Oh yeah, I know your dad. I know your mom or, or whoever. I think when you have the center here, it just amplifies that because now these kids are around, not only they're around their parents, but they're around all the good people that play the sport. So they just sit there and they emulate people. You watch the Elsers, you watch the Greaves, you watch all these kids play and they're, I swear to God, they're just trying to do what their mom and dad do. And so they practice it from the time they're little. And I remember Logan and Mason running around the court in Paris and it's, yeah, you, you know, and I think when you're around great people doing things right, then you will do it right as well. Yeah. It's just kind of cool to, to see all the names. And like you said, like they're just exposed to it at such a young age, but yeah, it is funny if you just, I'm sure I'm missing people, but if you just go down volleyball, Alberta's list right now of coaches, uh, there's so many second generation people. And then uh, I think that's just going to have a ripple effect to continue to make uh, Calgary and, and university of Alberta and all the other schools competitive that like, it, it's no coincidence. The same names keep popping up over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And now, and now I think because the knowledge is just being transferred, that, that pool gets wider and wider. So it's just, it's great. There's just so much talent and national team is playing really well. And it's, it's nice to see. Well, this has been great. I want to thank you for coming on the show. It was great. I I thought I knew about your career, but to learn more and hear about all the things you went to and just the details of the national team. But uh, one thing we've, we've tried to build into a tradition on the show is just, you, our, our listeners have learned about your career, heard about that you've played at the highest level, but the, the volleyball community can be pretty unique. So I was hoping you could share us just uh, one more good story before we let you go about something that maybe you wouldn't have experienced if you hadn't played volleyball at such a high level. Well, it, it's certainly not a funny story, but it's the first thing that popped into my head. And the, the first year I went to Japan, as I mentioned before, Gino was playing for Suntory. I'm playing for Nippon Steel, but we were both involved in that crazy um, Kobe earthquake that happened in 1995. So it was really quite a, well, it was horrible. Let's, I think 6,000 people died in that earthquake. I was relatively lucky other than feeling my bed move and underneath the, you know, I'm looking up at the, the ceiling fixture on the roof and the bed is shifting below it. But talking to Gino, he told me that his coffee maker was on the other side of his apartment from where it started. And um, Bob Samuelson was playing with him. He was the American middle. And um, he was from California. And I remember seeing him at one of the matches shortly thereafter. And he said, Jesus, Randy, I've been in a lot of earthquakes in California, but I thought I was going to die in this one. Like it was insane. So it was uh, it was pretty crazy. And the way the teams work there, they're owned by corporations. So Nippon Steel, basically, we had a training camp, but they had a mini hotel there. And they would bring teams in and host teams. And that's actually where I stayed when I went to try out. It ended up being full of refugees from Kobe. So all these women and kids walking around in house coats. And, um, you know, I had teammates that lost friends. So was it a wasn't a nice experience but it was sure uh certainly amazing to kind of experience that and live through that and and um another little interesting part too one of my best friend on the team who's now the was the head coach this past summer for the japanese men's team in japan they can be a little guarded with what they want to tell people and they don't necessarily like to show their emotions and the way they're feeling and I was watching the television and they were saying, 
you know, there's going to be aftershocks. So people have to be aware and you've got to be ready. And, and I went to Nakagaichi and I said, is this going to happen? And he said, yeah, I think you better pack a bag and put your passport in and your clothes and your uniforms. If anything happens, I'll meet you in the baseball field. I want you to go straight over there and we'll go from there. But this is after I had talked to some of the young guys on the team and they were just like, no, Randy, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. So they weren't quite straight up with me. And I had to, you know, talk to a really good friend before he said, Hey, you need to make sure that you're ready for this. Cause it's, it's real. And, and what do you do at a time like that? Cause I imagine new news still travels really fast, but you don't have a cell phone. You don't have access to all this stuff. Like, did your family hear about this? Like, did you feel the need to get to a phone and let them know that you were okay? Because I'm, I'm sure back home, they, they heard the news and they were like, Whoa, like we got to check on Randy. Yeah, I called home right away and just, you know, I was really lucky where I was. I didn't feel very much at all, but I, you know, phoned my parents, phoned Julie and just let them know that everything was all right. Because when you're looking at the imagery on TV, I mean, there were highways that were down and buildings and it was, it was terrible. I mean, we tried to train the next day and I think we made it 500 meters out of our apartment and it was gridlock because so many roads were destroyed that traffic couldn't flow and it was impossible to get anywhere. So we just turned around and went home. Crazy. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And as I go down my notes, I do have just one more question I forgot to ask and hopefully just raise your spirits before we let you go. Maybe one of the best nicknames I've ever heard. How did you earn the nickname Kid Dynamite? Kid Dynamite? Yeah. Well, there was a there was a journalist here in Calgary that called me Kid Volleyball. I've never heard Kid Dynamite, but. Oh, maybe my sources are, are wrong. I thought I, I popped up in a YouTube video. It was talking about how you, you were called Kid Dynamite, but Kid Volleyball is a good one, too. Yeah, I know. It was just a guy that used to write and cover some of the university sports, and that was his thing. So that's that's where that came from. But, um, you know, I appreciate those people. They took the time to cover us, right? We were just uh, maybe not a mainstream kind of sport back then, but those writers, I really appreciate them from back in that day. I think his name was Alan Mackey with the Herald, Calgary Herald. Nice. Yeah, good shout out there to close it. Well, Randy, this has been awesome. Thanks again for joining us. Definitely one of the, the best players we've seen in Canada. So it was good to hear your story and everything you've accomplished and everything that kind of went into that journey. So thanks for sharing all that you did and, and best of luck in the coaching game and everything else you've got going on. You're still obviously involved in our sports. So thanks for everything that you did as a player and, and will continue to do as a coach. Thank you. I appreciate it.